Scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And from Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Good morning. Good to see everybody out today. Good to have our visitors with us. Um, Next week, of course, is uh, appreciate it is uh, Easter Sunday, the day uh, that in throughout you know histories uh, the the the, uh, the centuries since Christ, for um, at least much of the world, has been celebrated as uh, as the resurrection day of Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead. It's clear from the New Testament that the resurrection is really something Christians should focus on daily. It's it's nothing less than our identity in many ways. We're going to be talking about that. It's the hope that we have for going beyond the grave um, and the hope that we should bring into everyday life. But it is beneficial, I think, to make, make it the focus of sermons this time of year. A lot of people are thinking about it, and we like to talk about the relevance of the Scripture to what's going on in our culture and broader society. So this week and next week, we're going to be taking a break from our annual theme of Ministers of Reconciliation. Uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, to focus more specifically on just the resurrection of Christ and its implications for us. But when you, when you think about it, the, the topic of the resurrection is, is really not much of a departure from focusing on, on that mission, that ministry, since the ministry of reconciliation grows out of new creation in Christ. That's, it's right there in the same passage. Paul moves conceptually from this new creation that has been brought through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus into this broader ministry of reconciliation, which is just sort of a natural, seamless outgrowth or manifestation, application of that new reality. And new creation, really, if you think about the word new creation, the term is about new life. Creation in Genesis 1 was about taking this world which was devoid of life and dark and invading it with light, and then all this profusion of forms of life, right? That's what the creation account of Genesis 1 is basically doing. So new creation is new life. And to talk about this new reality of life invading this old world of death is to use resurrection language. So just talking about new creation is talking about resurrection. It's really not that much of a departure after all. Um, and the text we've been considering for much of uh, the, the weeks of, of 2023 with our annual theme connects these two things. It says in verse 15 that Jesus was for our sake, he, he died and he was raised. And then down in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Jesus, if they're in Christ, he or there is a new creation or a new creature. So what we want to do this morning then is ask what the resurrection means for us on a practical level. Paul says that one of the imperatives of the resurrection 
which opens to us this new creation reality is that we learn truly to see or behold something, right? Or to look at, to really study something, to, to train your gaze on something. He says, the old has passed away, verse 17, behold, check this out, focus in on it, the new has come. Do we really behold that? It's not a, to say behold in, in the imperative, like I'm commanding you to, to look at it, to stare at it, to gaze at it, is, is saying much more than, hey, there's this little thing you can check off and put in your pocket and forget about. Part of our life is to really grasp that, to, to, to uh, turn it over in our minds and in our hearts and to capture all the facets and implications of this new reality that is called new creation. We've got to behold that. So what I'd like to do this morning is kind of focus on what is new about, uh, what, what kinds of new realities does the resurrection bring? If we're going to behold the fact that the old has passed away and the new has come, well then what does that mean? What is new that has come? And there's some really radically new things that have come to us, have come into our new lives by virtue of the empty tomb. And I want to present some of those really basic sermon today. And then next week I'd like for you to be thinking in the interim between today and next week, next Sunday when we're going to actually meet outside in the pavilion for our service. Um, I'd like for you to be thinking through these next few days about how each of these things we talk about today applies to you personally and be thinking about how you might can uh, somebody else might benefit from your sharing that with them so let's consider for a few minutes this morning some of these radically new blessings that come from the resurrection this is not an exhaustive list these are three things that come to my mind pretty quickly from this text and others um, that are related conceptually first of all the the, the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, brings a new purity into our lives. You can think of that as being clean before the Lord, standing before the Lord in a way that He, a holy God, that has not the slightest tinge of, of taint, of evil, of wickedness, of impurity, He's the one we, we have to do with ultimately, and how are we able to stand in His presence being sinners? Well, the resurrection has a lot to do with His purification, making us holy. And of course, the first place our minds go is the death of Christ. He, he died on a Roman cross in the first century A.D., uh, and, and that was, of course, key to making us righteous in Christ. The, the end of this paragraph says, for our sake... He made, God made, the Father made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes our sins totally into Himself and upon Himself. And, and, and he, when He dies, that is being dealt with. All the sins of humanity, past, present, future. And there's an exchange that happens in some mysterious way. I'm not going to get into theories of atonement and all that. I, I think the Bible just gives us many facets of this reality that we're, we're never going to really grasp. That's kind of God's stuff. But at the end of the day, he, the righteous one, becomes sin, and I, the unrighteous one, become righteous. Through some sort of divine, mysterious exchange that happens at Calvary. We know that. That's Christianity 101. Another way to put this is, as John puts it in Revelation 1.5, Christ loves us and has freed us, or some versions say, loosed us from our sins 
by his blood. His death frees us from our sins. So we think about the cross a lot in that connection of how we become pure before God. How much do we think about the resurrection in this regard? Because the resurrection is very much connected scripturally to our ability to stand before this holy God and, and not to be condemned, but to be welcomed because he yet lives and he is living at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible tells us two or three times that what, he, what, what he's doing there. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's standing as a mediator, an arbiter, um, an advocate, a lawyer. There are a lot of different biblical metaphors that are used, but the role is that he's interceding for us. Romans 8, uh, 34 says, Who is to condemn? That is us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And Hebrews makes this even more dramatic in my, uh, my estimation, at least my reading. Hebrews uh, 7.25 Consequently, he that is Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. You ever felt, I just don't feel saved. The Bible says that. I don't, I don't have trouble in my, my moments. You know, I'm, I'm kind of haunted by my guilt and uh, my shame and, and just my seeming inability to ever get better. He is able to save to the uttermost. There's a level of redundancy there that the Holy Spirit has given us for our own good. Those who draw near to God through him, since he, notice this, always lives or ever lives to make intercession for them. I think one of, the, one of the implications of this phrase, he always lives or ever lives, depending on your version, to make intercession for us, is that that's why he's doing there. Like, I live for this. It, it could have that connotation. What's Jesus doing? Is right. he, he lives to make intercession for you and for me. But also, he lives. He's alive. He's always alive. And so if his role is to intercede and he's gone, one day he died, and the father turns around and goes, oh, nobody, okay, then you're sinners again. But he's, he's there, present tense, always interceding for us. He is saying, this sinner's sins have been covered by my blood. That sinner, father, belongs to us. He's with us. And I, I know I'm kind of anthropomorphizing that, making it sound like a dialogue that might not be. I don't know. It's a mystery. How, any, anytime you're talking about God, who's infinite, we're, we're approximating things at best. Um, but on some level, he has this intercessory role that continues because he continues. So he is making us pure. It isn't just that he made us pure. He continually makes us pure because he ever lives as a resurrected Christ to intercede for us. First John chapter end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two applies this, this basic concept, this truth at a more kind of functional level. It gives us more of a the, you know, granular detail of, of ways that we can bring this into our lives. And basically what it says there is that sinners should try their best not to sin. So if you become a Christian, you know that you're to try to avoid sin. You're trying to walk in the light, not in darkness to use the language of first John. But then it goes ahead to say, if you think you're going to overcome sin, not so fast, because if you say that, you're actually a liar. And you're denying just a fundamental truth. The truth is not in you if you say that. So don't sin, but when you sin, it's not over. It's not the end of the story. 
Why is that? Because Christ is our advocate, and he continues to advocate for us, to intercede. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every bit of it. Cleansed. Make us pure. All, how much of it? All of it. And it's not kind of, we hope he did, we're throwing dice here, we hope he will. He is faithful. He's trustworthy to do this. It's a promise. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, continuing, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is also the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So there's a definite connection between the resurrection and the fact that, is, that Christ is continually cleansing us because he ever lives to make intercession. That's a very comforting thought to me. That my Savior is up there on an ongoing basis. Like he gets up in the morning and he can't wait to intercede for me. That's why he's alive. That's what he's doing. And for you too. The truth is though, I, I, if you're like me, there are times when we, we don't feel so cleansed. We don't feel that pure. If we're honest, we have some trouble trusting that. Maybe we examine our actions or our reactions or our innermost motives. You know, it's possible to do the best things in the world for the wrong motives. The most biblical, righteous, servant activities can be done for very self-oriented motives. I want a result. I want you to respond this way. I want you to think more. I mean, there's a million of them. And, and it's hard to know your innermost motives. But in our more candid moments, when God is giving us that insight to see ourselves truly, we know that we're not there. Our priorities are out of whack. Our decisions aren't always the best. They don't reflect the holiness of God and the agenda of God, do they? We know that, you know, I'm just not there yet. And we sometimes live like we're not even sure who we are. Truth be told. But there's a second important reality, a, a radically new reality that the resurrection confers upon us. And that is that we not only have this new and ongoing purification from Christ, but we actually get to become a new person. I'm saying a different thing here. A completely, not a tweaked person, not an adjusted person. That's not the language the Bible uses. It's transformation. It uses words like the, the word that we get metamorphosis from. Our whole form is changing. Our being is changing. The resurrection is key to this too. Not only cleansing us, but it plays this huge role in transforming us. There's something about the resurrection of Christ that makes us holy new creatures. It resurrects us. It turns us into new kinds of, 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 of people, spiritually speaking. 2 Corinthians 5 makes this clear. He talks about, for their sake, Jesus died and was raised. And then he sees a logical flow from that to the next point. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Think about creation language from Genesis. That's what this is invoking. You're doing radically new things. Something's coming in from outside the system, right? It's darkness. It's void. It's chaos. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Whatever that means, it certainly means something from outside, something transcendent is becoming imminent. As paradoxical as that is. Um, but that's, that's the language here too. It's a new creation and we're involved in that. If we're in Christ, that's our new reality. 
Now, part of how does that happen? Let's talk about that for a minute. Part of it is a matter of, of our will. Part of it is a matter of our volition, our choice, or choices that we make. Things like duty and commitment, decisions, sacrifices, weighing the relative value of things, what's worth sacrificing for, what's worth sacrificing. That's part of will and choice. And in this aspect, the resurrection serves as a kind of model for us of, of this potential new reality, depending on whether we choose to live into that new reality. It's out there, sitting there, right? Are we going to choose it? Are we going to live into that? Are we going to allow that divine transformation of our very beings to happen? We have to decide how we are going to live. Romans 6, I think, kind of makes this point. You know, Romans 6 is often used as a proof text for baptism. It's necessity. I believe it shows that, but that's not really the context that it occur, this verse occurs in. What he's really saying in Romans 6 is, right, you've all been baptized. That's not even, that was never off the table. But what is your baptism? He's trying to get them to, to be reflective, right? Like introspective about what their baptism symbolized, what it was supposed to, to, to mean, to show to lead to. And he says, are you ignorant that all you who were baptized were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death, and so on. So that's supposed to have practical implications in the way your life is changing. So if you pick it up in verse 4, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's the same language, new life, new creation. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has daily practical import for what you or I are becoming or should be becoming. Now, why do I see this as a volitional thing, a choice thing? Why is there that element in it? Well, look, that's kind of what he's talking about in the verses around this. Verse 11, for instance, he says, So you must also consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. His point is, you were baptized into Christ and that paralleled and emulated, you were kind of recapitulated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His resurrected body is a different body than his pre-resurrection body that could die. Well, morally, spiritually, you're going through that same going down to go up. And you're supposed to be ascending now. You're supposed to be being transformed. And so guess what? You have a role to play in that. He didn't make us into you know, robots. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. That's a choice. He's appealing to our will. So part of this has to do with the daily kinds of choices we're making. And I want you to just do a mental exercise with me here for a minute. And we'll probably revisit this next Sunday maybe. Um, I want to illustrate here how I want to show you a blank art canvas. And I want you to think about your life in light of that. All right. So I want you to think about this canvas being your, does that look like a canvas? Is it? Okay. It's all fading into each other, but you can tell that a person is looking at a blank canvas. That canvas is your life. All right. And I want you to think about the question is uh, of uh, who are you going to be? And there's, of course, you know, that's, that's a, a dynamic kind of question, a dynamic kind of answer. It's going to be, you're going to be the cumulative, you know, brush strokes that have built up over time with all the textures and colors and images and light or lack thereof that that conveys at, at the end of your life, right? 
There's a lot of painting going into what becomes your life. I want you to think about this question. If that blank canvas is your life, what will be painted on it? More important question is, who will paint your life? Who's the painter? I think a whole lot of people, if their life is a painting, it's just basically a reflection of their society and culture. Whatever's going on in the time they happen to be born, the place they happen to be born, you know, it's almost like de facto we put our finger in the wind and go, all right, just paint me. Unintentional, I just sort of bop through life. I am a blank canvas and somebody else or a whole bunch of somebody's, what my phone says, what the TV says, what my friends say, what Hollywood says, what athletes say, what musicians say, I'm just painted by you. I'm a passive object. And then we're shocked we don't like the way our life turns out. Well, you let somebody else paint you the whole time. And I think sometimes we react to that and we go, well, I'm not going to do that. Even unbelievers are, are, are commonly saying things like, nobody's going to paint my canvas. I'm going to paint my own life. I'm going to write my own story, if you like that metaphor better. But does that really help us if all we we are, if all I am is just a reflection of my society and culture, I think a whole lot of people think they're painting their own painting, and really all they're doing, they're just an avatar for their broader culture. Their arm is moving at the behest of what their culture and society says. They feel independent, it feels better. How do you know you're not just a reflection of all the values and aesthetics and priorities? I mean, Madison Avenue tells us what to want, and we go, yes, thank you for giving me meaning. Oh, and it's changed? Let me get that too. Right? We're often not nearly so independent as we think. Let me suggest to you a third painter. Don't let society and culture do it. Don't let your friends do it. But make sure that if you think you're the one doing it, that really Jesus is doing that through you. Let Jesus be the artist who paints your canvas. And I know that probably strikes some people outside the realm of Christianity, maybe even within it, as, well, I lose my autonomy. I lose my independence. I, can't, I want to be me. First of all, who made you? What does it even mean to be you? I want to be my authentic, true self. I submit to you the Bible's answer to that is, you will never find your authentic, true self outside of the one in whose image you were made. You are living into your truest self when you give up the reins, when you give up the brush and say, hey, Jesus, paint my life. You will become your truest, most authentic self. Way more than this act of seeming autonomy, which makes you just a mirror of all the things around you. So think about that. Ways that it might apply to you, we might revisit that next week. Maybe not. I'm not sure yet, but we'll see. It won't be a waste of time either way, right? Pretty good exercise, I think. All right. Another part of this, though, has to do not just with our will or our choice, but the Spirit of God Himself. The resurrection very much talks about this in several places, that God's Spirit, if you're a Christian, is, is dwelling inside you. He's taken up residence, God has, through His Spirit in your heart, in your life. And that what He is trying to do there to the extent that you, that you open yourself to Him, is to change you from the inside out, to transform us. Because that Spirit that's inside us is the same Spirit, the Bible tells us, that raised Jesus from the dead. That is a resurrecting Spirit. 
If we move on past the Romans 6 passage we quoted a minute ago about how baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and new life, the resurrection life in Jesus, in Romans 7, the next chapter, Paul uses repeatedly this term, the body of death. He refers to his own body of death as a way to refer to the relentless tendency that he finds in his own being to sin. Despite his best intentions, despite the fact that he doesn't have a knowledge problem, Paul is a scholar in the Word of God. He's Holy Spirit inspired, and he still says, however hard I try, whatever I, I want to do is often not the thing I do. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? His answer is that the only way out of this straitjacket of moral failure, this slavery to sin, is the deliverance that comes from outside himself. Not ultimately from his effort, his willpower, his sense of duty, his guilt trip, whatever else it is. Those things play a role. But it ultimately can't come from that. How would this be good news? That's the same old news every religious system has. Something does come from outside the system, outside the world, outside us. And that something is the deliverance that comes from Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he proceeds in Romans 8 to elaborate on this. It is the resurrection. In particular, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead that is yet alive and now indwelling you and me if you are a Christian. And that Spirit that is indwelling us the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is giving new life to me and you. It is transforming us, taking these bodies of sin and death and transforming them into something else. He, he writes about it in Romans 8.10 here. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of, of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's an old song by the band Switchfoot from San Diego that I love. The song's called 24. There's a line in there that just says, He's raising the dead in me. Not He raised the dead in me, but He's raising the dead in me. Like every day. And that's what these verses say. They're all present tense. That Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the, is, in, is in me now, transforming the body of death into the kind of person that God wants us to be. The resurrection isn't just something that happened once a long time ago so that we can have something in the realm of apologetics to argue about. Right? Well, it's got to prove it happened. Well, that's fine. That's good. But, so it happened. Now what? <laughs> like, that's not usually the point being made. The point being made usually is what does that mean? And it means that he is transforming us We've got to let him do that. We've also got to resist that, that frustration, that self-talk of guilt, which says, because you've sinned again, you might as well give up. I know we get tired of feeling guilty and frustrated with our failures. If you're like me, some of the things that you, had, you struggled with you know, decades ago, they're still the ones because they come out of your DNA or your background or your trauma or all the things that uniquely make you 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 have the same weaknesses usually for life you get better but what do those feelings of guilt mean what does that tinge mean what do we do with that a lot of times we take it as a sign that we're failing 
What if instead God is using that to show us that he's working on us? 17th century French writer by the name of Francois Fenelon said, Never let us be discouraged with ourselves. It is not when we are conscious of our faults that we are the most wicked. On the contrary, we are less so at that point. When you're conscious of it, you're actually less wicked. We are seeing by a brighter light, he says. And let us remember for our consolation that we never perceive our sins till God, till he begins to cure them. It's, it's the delta between what we know we ought to be and what we are that we feel the pain. But that, that we're, the awareness of that delta, the, the awareness of the shortfall, the fact that, that, that the light is being backlit by the darkness, it's that, that dissonance or tension. It may be the Spirit saying to you, I'm, I got gotcha. you. Good thing you feel guilty about that. You're alive, right? Dead people don't feel things. Spiritually dead people just sail through life thinking everything's wonderful. They've lost all ability to do any introspection. They're right. Everybody else is wrong. How could there be anything wrong with them? They're dead. What if, though, you're feeling these feelings of failure because the Spirit is in you, convicting you? Take that as a compliment, that he who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you, raising you from the dead every day. One more, and then we'll stop today. The, the, the resurrection also confers upon us this radically new blessing of a new peace. A new peace. John talked about this in Family Bible, Bible Education. He's talking about getting the kids to think about when you, when you go through anxiety and fear and you're worried about things, remember that Christ is always there with you. Well, if he died you know, and was exed by the Romans, we, we wouldn't have this, it would not be very relevant. But this problem that we all face, this problem of fear, which is universal, and I know some of you macho guys don't want to admit that, call it, call it anxiety or stress if you want to. Anxiety is just fear light, right? It's just a low-grade continuing fear kind of in the structure of your life. It's not as acute, more chronic. But we all deal with fear, with anxiety, with worry on some level. If that's not the case, why is fear the thing that's contrasted with love in 1 John 4, 18? Why did hatred or unbelief, perfect love casts out fear? And in the parlance of 1 John, to talk about love is to talk about God, right? He ultimately just says God is love. That comes from 1 John. So to be overcome with fear and permeated by fear and at fear's mercy is to be pushed away from God. It's an indication that there's some disconnect or at least it's an attenuated connection because God is love and love and fear, they move in the opposite direction. The most frequent command in the Bible, I've said this before here, number one in terms of frequency, not be holy, not obey, be not afraid, do not fear, way more times. Why? A lot of our disobedience and lack of holiness comes because we are afraid to do it God's way. We don't trust that. It's like the garden. There's a fear there. There's a worry that I won't get my needs met or I won't be fulfilled or I might get killed or, you know, whatever it is. I won't be, I'll feel in, excluded, not included, all the things. 
One of the radically new blessings of the resurrection that is offered to us is freedom from fear. I'm going to call this peace in part because it starts with a P. But really, tranquility, calm during the storms of life which are going to come. Peace is a good word for that. And it has to do with knowing how to handle fear, knowing, knowing what to do with our anxiety. Hebrews 2.15 calls fear of death a form of slavery. The NIV says we are held in slavery by the fear of death. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead applies to you. It applies to me. It foreshadows our own resurrection in the same way that the first fruits, that's his metaphor there, the first fruits of a harvest foreshadow more of the same kind of fruit to come. He says that's like me and you, folks, Jesus says. You pluck that, well, you don't pluck it yet. Sometimes you can't resist it if you like fried green tomatoes. But, you know, in a few weeks, you know, we're going we're gonna to have tomatoes in the ground. Some of you who just moved down here probably already have them in the ground. You'll learn. You'll learn. Maybe this week was okay, but, like, you know, people always like, it's March 1. It's warm here. Give it in there. Farmer's Almanac says no. Tax day. Anyway, um, I have done that so many times, and, like, just they sit there anyway. Or get nuked. Remember the first cool day when you get the little yellow blossoms all over your tomatoes and then you see a little green ball? And if you like fried green tomatoes, you want to batter that sucker, pluck it, but it's not big enough. So you, you know that more is coming, a whole lot more, right? It's the first of more of its kind. That's what God, that's the metaphor he chose to use about the resurrection. Our resurrection is coming. We will have a resurrection body apparently like Jesus's that will be fit for the new heavens, new earth. A more consummate, substantive, real reality than the one we're in now. This is more the shadow. That's the reality. And that's coming. And, and, and Christ was the harbinger of that with his own rising from the grave and walking around and talking to people. So we have an answer to the problem of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But in, Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. And this is why he can write that a Christian's resurrection is nothing less than victory over death. And maybe worse than that, the dark spell of fear. I often think that's worse than the death itself. This idea of death. It's just so jacked up. We, we, we somehow know in ourselves that it wasn't supposed to happen, right? And there's a spell, it's a dark spell that that casts over us. And the resurrection gives us victory over that. Paul says as much in chapter 15, verse 53 of 1 Corinthians, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that fear of death, is handled by the resurrection of Jesus. But his resurrection also frees us from our fears just about sort of the, the atmosphere we live in, maybe the future, the unknown. You know, we get some solace from fear when we feel like we're in control. Often that's a pipe dream, right? We think we're in control, but there's some, we, we, we long for control of things. We want to control things that are unknown. We want to protect everyone that we love and um, you know, what, whether we're talking about health, finance, uh, whatever it is, we all deal with anxiety about what might come. You ever had the feeling of, well, things are pretty good now, but what's about to happen? Anybody? 
Everybody? When's that shoe going to drop? John was afraid. John of the apocalypse of Revelation. He sees Jesus, and it's mind-blowing what he sees in Revelation 1. This vision is, like, alarming. And what Jesus says is, verse 17 of Revelation 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. When we are worried about something we can't get our brain around, like this vision, about whatever known or unknown threat or danger that might possibly come about, the things that might come, right? How much anxiety and, and, and emotional energy do we expend just on what might happen? This could lead to this, which could lead to that, which could lead to that, which could lead to that. I do that all the time. Most of which people tell us, experts say, doesn't happen anyway. Suppose it does, at some point it's going to. Something's going to happen, right? A lot of us have already gone through a lot of those somethings. Jesus says, fear not. And what does he connect it to? The fact that he triumphed over death. Not just the example he gave us or something like that. He is alive. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And this, this phrase actually, come, this is interesting. Fear not, I am the first and the last, comes from Isaiah 44. It's a direct quote. I am the first and the last, and a few verses later he says, fear not. And the context there was the, the threat, the, the imminent reality of Babylonian captivity. Imagine an empire, the, the greatest empire of the day, with all of their weapons, all their technology, all their rapacious you know, thirst for bloodshed, Zero empathy for you. They believe their gods rule the world and their, their victories lining, you know, stacking upon one another prove it in their view. And if you're, you know, you're honest, you're not sure they're not right. And here they're coming to your place to take your family captive, to kill your loved ones, to destroy the temple of your God, to take you to a place where you don't speak the language, you don't know the gods, and you're going to be slaves. That's a, a clear and present danger right there. That's not just me being a worry ward. That's like, be afraid, be very afraid. And yet, the Lord says, fear not, because I am the first and the last. In other words, whatever you're fearing or worried about is happening within the realm framed by me being the first and the last. There's nothing else outside that. So it's happening within the realm that I created, that I, I surround on both ends. What do you fear? What absolute chaos? What's, what's your Babylonian exile? What is it you fear might spiral out of control? In Revelation 1, a few verses earlier in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first letter in the alphabet and the last letter in the alphabet. That's the Greek alphabet. We'd say I'm the A and the Z. There is no story that can be written. There's no narrative. This story, you can't craft a story that doesn't use the letters that, that I am. I'm the whole alphabet. The story was constructed by me and from me. So what are you what world are you in that where that doesn't apply? 
I am the God who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, I'm transcendent. I'm, I'm not bound by time. I'm outside time. I'm, I'm outside and above your world. David put it in a psalm, Lord, I know that my times are in your hand. In other words, there's never a time or a situation, a threat, a danger, a worry, in which Jesus isn't there, alive and well and presiding. So we need to learn to be people who ponder the fact that the old has passed. The empty tomb signals a whole new reality. This is a paradigm change. This is everything. It's revolutionary. It's not you just keep living your same old story, modern Western individualist oriented toward yourself and your fun and your money and your this and that. And, and he gives you the little God thing so you can put it in your back pocket and I got salvation handled. Now just keep. No, he's a revelation. If, if this isn't revolutionary, then tell me what to do with the claim that somebody came back from the dead. That, like, by definition, reorients the world. And it, it's not a one narrative. New Testament talks about no, that's an ongoing thing the Spirit's doing in you, and it's going to culminate in a whole new order, cosmos-wise. We need to behold that. We need to look at that. Behold. The new has come. These are radically new realities that the resurrection of Jesus has brought into our life. That doesn't mean that they are all the way here in their ultimate form, all these realities. But they have entered the world. They've entered our lives. So when you're frustrated with yourself or other people or the way things are, I am at times, we need to remember that, that we're involved in a divine process. At the end of Revelation, we find Jesus saying to John, these words, kind of echoing what was said in Revelation 1 at the beginning of his vision. He who was seated on the throne, Revelation 21.5, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, I find it interesting that he says, I am making all things new. And then a second later, he says, it's done. If that's not a statement of the already not yet, I don't know what is. How could it be in process? I am making. If I say to you, I'm making a cake, you don't probably jump right in right then. It's just a bunch of eggs and, you know, gross stuff. I am making it. You, want, you wait till it's made, right, before you want a piece of it. And yet, it's finished, it's done. There's no question about the outcome. Only we're still living kind of like at twilight, you could say, at dawn. Darkness is all around us, but the, but the sun is rising. And we know what happens when we begin to see that light. We know what's coming. And still, we live at the dawn. The already, but not yet. And some moments in our lives are going to be those already moments. When the light is palpable and bright and we can feel it and we're full of joy and we should revel unabashedly in the blessings of those moments and give God all the glory. He loves that. We're his children. Don't you love it when your children are feeling joy 
it's appropriate joy? There's not some, something spiritual about denying yourself. That's, that's glorifying God. But some of our days aren't those already days. They're the not yet times, right? When darkness feels more real. When it's harder to believe that that light is really on the way. That's what we're perceiving. But what we know, by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus, who, as the beginning and the end, transcends time, is that He is making all things new. All right, be thinking about it, praying that, about that this week. We'll probably talk about it again next week. I'm not sure in what format, maybe interactively. But I want you to definitely be thinking about how these three radically new things, that the resurrection infuses into your ongoing daily life, what that looks like practically for you. All right? Thank you for your attention. Somebody here today who's not a Christian, we stand ready to help you uh, by way of Bible study. Uh, you would help us uh, just as much, perhaps, because we are all people who need help as well. We believe the answers are in, in Jesus and in His Word. So if we can help you um, come closer to Him uh, in any way that you might need, let us know by coming to the front. As together we stand and sing.